Hey everybody and welcome. You are listening to Lox LaRue's Locker Room. Join me each episode with a different special guest. We'll be breaking the locks off toxic masculinity one locker at a time. On this episode, I'm joined by the influential and inspiring King of Boylesque, Chris O. Chris O is a Boylesque performer. They were voted 14th most influential Boylesque performer in the world in 2019. They also won Mr. Gay World 2013. Today we talk about masculinity, femininity and queer sexuality throughout history and how this has influenced their Boylesque acts, as well as the empowerment that comes from being both hyper-masculine and feminine in their performances. Please note that the conversations between me and my guests are purely based on our own thoughts and experiences. Now with all that in mind, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hello everyone, and just before we start, here is a lesson in masculinity 101. Philippe de France, brother of King Louis XIV, was always known to have a preference for men. It was no secret. Although the king's brother was married twice and fathered plenty of children, his real love was a man three years younger than him. In 17th century France, homosexuality was a crime and King Louis XIV himself was no fan of men loving men, yet had to tolerate it due to his brother. After all, if he were to punish the men of his court who openly showed off their male lovers, he would have to start with his own flesh and blood. Hey everyone and welcome to Lox LaRue's Locker Room. Today I've got with me an extra special guest. I'm really honoured to have this guest with me today. They are an international superstar. Um, they're influential and inspiring. The king of boylesque, Chris O. Hello, hello. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so I was hoping we could start um, finding out a bit more about um, your performing background to give the listeners some context. So could you tell us a bit about um, yourself as a performer and how you started and stuff? Sure. So um, I am a classically trained and contemporary dancer. um, And I have been doing that since the age of 22. So, you know, a good 14 years ago, I started my formal training. Um, Before that, the thing that gave me the impetus to pursue a career in performance arts was drag. Um, And I started that at around the age of 20. And I kind of loved classical dance, but my body shape was not the correct, I guess, formula for uh, classical work. So I worked as a contemporary dancer and the company that I worked for way back when kind of destroyed my love of dance in that format because I think it was just the style of the company that I was in, really. Um, Nothing against them. I got to tell my stories. I got to create characters, explore makeup, create costumes. Um, And now I tour the world doing burlesque, this wonderful thing that has allowed me to bridge the gaps between all these different disparate things, creative avenues, and bundle it all into one package. And that is my boylesque now career. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, and we'll get on to... um boylesque in a in a bit which I'm really excited to chat about so if I just um pick a few things from what you said basically um yeah you said about um changing to boylesque because you used to do contemporary and with um body types and stuff like that do you think that in in boylesque compared to before with your contemporary dancing do you feel like you're able to sort of celebrate your body more and sort of masculinity and, and femininity compared to before I think that there is 
there is such a, a beautiful aura of acceptance in the boylesque world that, you know, all body types are are loved and um, applauded and celebrated. So very much so. I think that, you know, I've come into this space where anybody in whatever formal way is celebrated for who they are and not necessarily what they look like. And it comes down to your your personal embodiment of your being, I guess, in whatever way or form you choose to present that. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and speaking of more of Boyless now, I was hoping we could um, talk about some of your acts and your costuming, which is really stunning. So I thought maybe we could talk about um, your Peacock Act in particular. I sort of um, thought about how we could relate this to masculinity as well, um, in the sense that um, peacocks are sort of the male of the peacocks and the pheasant. And obviously they're the most like colourful still which I think is really good so I thought um we could sort of tie that in with like gender exploration and masculinity as well as finding out um a bit more about the act and the costuming if that's all right for sure well I guess my peacock act was something that has kind of like been broiling up for a while I am absolutely obsessed with um historical times and references and the peacock act in itself it kind of came about from me exploring the ideas of this wonderful bird of paradise and like you said it's it's unusual for the the masculine species of something to exhibit such campness i think is a is a correct wor- a word that i could use here because it really is but birds generally have that in in the the male species of birds and their courting rituals it is always the males that are the more colorful the more uh, visually attractive because that's how they attract the females but for me the idea of the peacock was this exploration in sumptuousness this um opulence of being and the celebration of something that is quite masculine but i used these um artifices of femininity like the the stays corset um the long dress um the floaty gowns or ganza you know the beautiful colors and schemes therein entailed to create and um i sort of zhuzh up <laughs> this character that i'd come up with and i really wanted it to be um a light-hearted exploration of just this joie de vivre i guess um, unlike some of my other acts, which are, are more personal and a lot more sort of melancholic in their in their themes because, you know, they draw on darker things. So this peacock, I really wanted just to be a celebration of light and color. And like you said, uh, I, I drew inspiration for the costume in itself from uh, Tudor, uh, from the Tudor times. So, you know, the, the proper sort of like circular stays, the, the rump, the rump skirts and the petticoats and just the ideas of exploring something that is or was for a woman at the time a very sort of confining practice of, you know, body shaping and limitation and exploring the movement and freedom that entails from releasing that of the body. I guess as in burlesque, you know, we take off the clothes. So, yeah, it's oh, it was a fun, a fun time. That's brilliant to hear a bit more about um, the inspiration and um, how you put it all together. And it is definitely a beautiful look and act. I thought that ties in nicely as well with another act that I wanted to talk to you about, about the Rococo act that you do. And I think you performed Mm. it recently at the Boyless Festival, didn't you? So could you talk to us a bit about the fashion behind um, this act and maybe some of the inspirations and ideas behind it? 
Okay, so Coco for Rococo is an act that like Bluebird that comes directly from one of my my second ever production I did when I had my dance company in New Zealand. And the show itself was um, a quest or an exploration of sexuality in general uh, with the guise and the overlay of, you know, 17th century France and in specifically the, the court of Versailles, um, only because one, the, the sumptuousness of the costume of the time and the era was, it was all about the lace and the flounce and the frill and the decoration and the color and it showed status and meaning and and it was done in a way to be almost overtly impractical i guess is a way to put it it wasn't about being comfortable it wasn't about being pragmatic it was purely for our like artificial showmanship and i really love that because it has a similar idea to the peacock it's all about showing off but in the period of history itself there are a lot of references of now contemporary references of the time of people and same-sex relationships and lovers and letters and in a period before this it was kind of very hush-hush whereas it became more openly accepted and even sort of discussed in the parlors of the time and so I really loved that there was this air of open campness that was almost accepted in the aristocracy and the you know the higher echelons of society and behind closed doors. And so that sort of openness of that openness of like brazen sexuality across the board, woman with woman, men with men, men with women and men, it was just, it was a very free time. And of course it was very limited because then the revolution happened and everything became really conservative again. But it was, it was a period of time that I felt was very, progressive in the sense that there were things being done in the open that had before never seen the light or at least been discussed in the light and so I wanted to play with that um, and so Coco for Rococo in itself is supposed to be the tail end of you know a soiree you know high on whatever sniffables they'd been having that evening and the kind of the play out of the different love and intrigues that they all had with each other. So the interrelationships between the different characters. And mine in specific was supposed to be the Chevalier to the Duc de Long, who was a famous homosexual and brother to the King Louis XIV. And so, you know, being the, the Chevalier or the Couturier, um, ploy him away from his uh, games and, um, you know, try to suggest some kind of like fun after our activity with me. And so the act in itself is, is in part a, a classical dance to Jean-Baptiste Lally, uh, to Deum, who was the court composer of Louis XIV, so the Sun King. And Jean-Baptiste Jean Lally was actually the court composer who himself um, was an open homosexual, but was given pardon by the king because of his music talent and was actually the core composer chosen by uh, the Sun King to compose all his, his musics and soirees and operettes and everything like that. So it was, you know, a, a lot of historical reference to things of the time to aid me in my little adventure. And yeah, so there is the, the initial dance scene, which is like the ending of the soiree, which then goes into I Want Candy. I reference both to Marie Antoinette, the movie, but also uh, a song that speaks of the excess of the time. 
and I pull candy out of places that should not be having candy. <laughs> and I and I teasingly jeer the audience by either spitting it or handing it to them in the audience. Um, and it's a it's a it's a fun cheeky act, and I love it because once again, it's it's a very lighthearted, and it's meant to take the piss in a in a way that I feel is is reflecting of the time wow that that's so cool um i really like the the research and the costuming and also the narrative that you've just said as well and also playing around with the audience um with like sweet treats and stuff as well so picking a few points from that i, I would like to ask um so in this act um because i haven't seen it live yet do you um do some contemporary dance within it um and have like the classical dance because i know you mentioned earlier that with um your background with um contemporary and classical it wasn't always you weren't always able to celebrate um the femininity and full self whereas do you think you sort of incorporated your roots from that into your different acts such as this one and you're able to celebrate um yourself more whilst also mixing your roots and also boylesque together Absolutely. Um, contemporary, not so much, maybe, but definitely the ballet. The first, the first dance section of about a minute to Jean-Baptiste Lally is is very much ballet, ballet. I do all my, you know, my grand battements, my chasses, my pas de bourrées, my little pas de chevals, and my pirouettes, and that period of which where the formalization of ballet occurred, um, because you know the Sun King himself, Monsieur Louis Lorraine. Uh, Le Roi Soleil, he himself was an avid fan of ballet um, and used ballet to sort of assert his his godly right to reign. Um, he used to present himself as the sun in big court ballets and would have his greatest advisors be the planets that would circulate him. And so this is a direct reference to that. And yes, um, it's an opportunity for me to do the thing that I love, and that is to dance ballet. Um, and like I said previously, having not been accepted into company work just because of the size of my body, I mean, I went to my my first ballet company audition, and they would size us up at the bar before we even did our plies, and they would look at you and say, like, "Is this the is this the thinnest you can get?" And I'm like, "This is the thinnest I've ever been." And I'm sorry, use the, the the wrong shape for our ballet. What we're looking for at the moment, so bye. Um, so you know, it, it it's I I had to find a way to be able to express my love of the dance, and I made it through doing it this way. And so yeah, it is very much a celebration of my body and a sort of a great big fuck you to the system of you know conservatism and what ballet is, the de rigueur. It was the way things go. So yeah, it is It is a celebration. And for the second part, when I become more cheeky and playful, it becomes more commercialized, I guess, um, only because you get to hit your body with different shapes and ways that people are more familiar with. And it's more the, the yes queen moments and less about the, the ballet, because I think if I were to do a full act of ballet, Bluebird aside, but that's more ballet performance, um, it's, it's a little less obtainable for people to reach for a, because it's 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 ballet is something I feel like people need to be sort of um, initiated into to have a greater understanding of it. So you know, we dazzle them with a moment of it, and then we give them what they want. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds wonderful. So um, before we finish, I was hoping we could just maybe talk about the Apollo Python Act. Um, 
that is a that is a real hark back because before I went into dance, I was doing a classics degree at university, ancient history, iconography, uh, art history, philosophy, and so I have an obsession with Greek and Roman myths and legends. And I was in Prague watching a Vivaldi concerto in one of the beautiful, um, I think it was called the Clementium, it's a church near the, the bridge. And I was looking at all these white alabaster statues with these golden armors and wings. And I saw uh, the angel, I think it's Michael stabbing the dragon, killing the dragon. And this sparked off a necessity to create something that looked like that. And so I created the act with this hand puppet dragon, which worked as a feather boa, well, instead of a feather boa. And the idea of painting my skin white and alabaster and slaying the dragon poured this liquid gold all over my body, which was a very sensual, almost cathartic sort of process. And of course, there's the, the imagery of, you know, good overcoming evil or, you know, triumphing over strife, that sort of idea. And so for me at the time, that's kind of impetus was the reason I wanted to create that. And it evolved from, I guess, Apollo and Python when um, to the, the theme of the Michael King the Dragon seemed a little off to me and I couldn't connect to it in a way that I felt appropriate for the performance. And then I remembered the story of the founding of Delphi. And Apollo was looking for a place to make his, his temple, his sanctuary, where people would come to worship him. And he found the sanctuary of Delphi, and the grounds were protected by this evil serpent. And so he had to kill the serpent to be able to claim the spot, which would then become the omphalos, the center of the ancient world. That was essentially the, the routine, is the, the killing of the snake and then becoming the full version of himself in his uh, cult center of Delphi wow that's that's um incredible because um i went to um a museum in berlin i can't remember what it was called now and then it had mixtures of like greek and roman um history and stuff and from what you were saying as well it seems like you um you focused on like strength as well becoming um your full self but also celebrating the femininity and masculinity at the same time which i think mm -hmm. possibly a lot of your acts do um and it's kind of it's kind of really inspiring to see that that you're able to celebrate strength alongside femininity mixing it with masculinity so for sure it's really great because i mean because i think the the act that really clinched that exploration and the amalgamation of all those things for me was originally bluebird it was my first performance i ever created on point in drag with corsets and feathers and things and so it was my first exploration into my character that chris o boylesque would become and it was the thing that kind of set me apart from the world but the thing that i thought i would never be booked for because it was so different from the world and yeah it was it was a strange sort of thing because when i first started doing like my burlesque stuff i never did the drag makeup i didn't have drag as a part of my life back then because I gave it up when I was at dance school only because I couldn't keep up the long weekends with the nighttime shows and then still be like fresh as a daisy come Monday morning so it was something that had to go and then there was this pressure to be so mask 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 while I was going through dance school like men should dance as men men partner girls men be men that it seemed like something that wasn't something that I should be playing with because it was you know 
kind of counterproductive for me. And then when I had the company working, we had to be so strong and masculine all the time. Anytime we sort of like jokingly became a little bit thin, you know, it was a, a slap on the wrist or a side glance. It was, it was something that you shouldn't really do. And so, yeah, when I created this bluebird performance and I put on a full face of drag, suddenly it had become something very special because the the liveness, the flexibility, but the sheer subtle beauty of just them being themselves in their point shoes was so beautiful to me, but it seemed so far from what I what I was allowed to do or what I was able to do. And when I created this performance, it was like, I want to embody that for myself because I know that is within me and I wanted to know what it felt like and I wanted to take the risk. And since it was my own show, hey, I can do whatever I want. So it gave me the space to do this. Um, and so I created that performance. And even though the performance is about something very dark that I've gone through in my life, that I've had a lot of trauma around, that trauma is the fuel for the beauty, I think, within the performance, because it is me laying myself vulnerable for everyone to see. And it's it's the shedding off of all the, these ideas of what masculinity and femininity are, because I present myself as hyper both, you know, super, super beautiful, super soft in my movements, super feminine. But then there's this there's absolute masculinity about me because I have the body that I do as a, as a direct <laughs> consequence of dancing. And I am not going to hide it away or pad it up. I'm going to celebrate that as well because it is who I am. And so I wanted to undress myself from these, I guess, these fetishes of gender. And it was surprising to me that it was the thing that catapulted me to where I am today was this unabashed, very open, authentic, authentically displayed version of myself as I saw myself as a as a beautiful hypergendered person in this in this construct. And it was it was truly a, a beautiful thing because the world saw me for who I was. I was able to create the art that I always wanted to do. And I was able to utilize all these things that I'd learned in my life, like costume making, makeup and choreography to be able to tell this very personal story that laid me bare on stage quite literally and metaphorically and people ate it up and accepted it and it became the thing that was my signature well thank you very much um Krista. it's been marvelous and really um great to have you on the podcast today really found it inspiring and um super interesting to listen to you so thank you for coming on today I'll thank see you. everyone later. All Bye. right. Ciao. I would like to thank Chris for coming on to my podcast today. If you want to catch more of Chris, then check out that Instagram handle in the episode description. If you do feel like leaving a review, please do so. Thank you for listening to Loxlaroo's Locker Room. And make sure to follow me on Instagram at Loxlaroo. Bye. Louis the 15th, 14th, 15th. One of them. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs>